Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 43, The Hunt Begins. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by James Baron McGregor. Like all of our patrons, he can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Sometime in the late reign of James VI and I, in a small rectory, in a small village, a husband and wife were going through a trial countless families have endured throughout time although the husband was in substantially less pain. This trial was, of course, childbirth, and the woman had gone through it at least three times before. The husband, surrounded by his fellows, were praying to their god to keep both mother and child safe from evil spirits during this dangerous time. The mother was called Mary, the father, James, of Great Wenham in the county of Suffolk, They were already parents to three sons named Thomas, John, and James, and once Mary's efforts were complete, they had a fourth. When the boy was baptised, he too was given the name of another of Christ's disciples, Matthew. Matthew Hopkins. Last week, we considered the arguments over how and why the deadliest witch trial in English history occurred. This episode, we will be concerned with the opening moves, of the so-called Hopkins trials, and on the origins of the witchfinders themselves, Matthew Hopkins and John Stern. Matthew's father, James Hopkins, was a minister, a godly man who had studied and later taught at Cambridge University. He was ordained at Ely Cathedral in 1609 and took up his role in Great Wenham in 1612. Cambridge at this time was a hotbed of Puritanism. The Hopkins household was a devout and zealous one and the young Matthew Hopkins took to his father's teachings like a fish to water. As to be expected for a son of a minister, 
Matthew heard countless sermons from his father and his father's colleagues, as well as less public efforts in the study of Bible and personal prayer. When Charles succeeded his father, and began to institute religious reforms that looked like the arguments of the Dutch theologian Arminius, James Hopkins's fellow Puritans were incensed. Professor Malcolm Gaskill, considering the likely rage within the Hopkins household to the reappearance of the institutions they thought long expelled from England, suggests that, quote, If there was one aspect of his childhood more likely than any other to have initiated and inspired Matthew's career as a witchfinder, this was it. End quote. When William Lord, Bishop of London, became William Lord, Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633, the second highest figure in the English church behind the king himself, the church authorities began to clamp down on disobedient Puritans within its hierarchy, admonishing and later dismissing recalcitrant ministers who refused to accept the Laudian reforms. Many Puritans, appalled at this apparent backsliding away from a truly reformed church, emigrated to New England. The Hopkins family, however, remained in Old England. Not for want of trying, though. Writing to his friend and the then-governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, he complained about the religious reforms of the new archbishop. In one letter in 1634, he promised that, quote, I have a purpose to make myself a member of your plantation, and when I come, I hope that I shall not come alone. That purpose was unfulfilled, as the Hopkins patriarch became bedridden during that winter and died in January 1635. Young Matthew, probably about 14 years old at this time, did not receive his father's books, like James Hopkins the Younger, nor was he dispatched to the New World, like Thomas. He didn't follow his father and other brothers into Cambridge or the church, despite the family having the means to pay. Instead, the common wisdom is that Matthew went into law, becoming a clerk to a lawyer in Ipswich, about eight miles to the southwest of Great Wenham. This story may well be true, but Professor Gaskill points out that the evidence is quite flimsy. A single signature on a 1641 conveyance document is the only evidence that Hopkins was employed in this field. Hardly the most ironclad of backstories, but this is just another part of Hopkins' pre-Civil War life that is shrouded in mystery. Whatever his profession, Hopkins soon moved to the big smoke of Manningtree, Essex. He appears to have received some measure of inheritance from his father and bought a house there. The Manningtree that Hopkins found in the 1640s was a small but prosperous little trading town, attracting people from across the southeast. One of these people was John Stern, who was in his mid-thirties when he appeared in Manningtree in 1645. He had grown up in rural Suffolk, like Hopkins, and had married a woman called Agnes Corston, unlike Hopkins, and made a home in Bury St. Edmunds, having a daughter sometime before 1644. Like Hopkins, Stern was a zealous Puritan, and when they met, in the words of Gaskill, each saw a future in collaboration with the other. As well as similar geographical origins, the two men shared a sentility that originated more in self-assertion than in wealth, estate, breeding, or title. Above all, they were men of action, end quote. It shouldn't be a surprise to learn that the start of the Hopkins trials began like any other witch panic, with a single spark. That spark came in the form of a woman, Elizabeth Clark, who had been suspected of killing the cattle of a local gentleman, Richard Edwards, in 1644. 
The animals were being driven past the home of Clark, and two dropped dead, from no apparent natural cause. Following this, Edward's newborn son was housed with a Manning Tree wet nurse who was a neighbour to Clark. When the baby fell into, quote, very strange fits, extending the limbs and rolling the eyes, end quote, and then died a few days later, Clark was the prime suspect. After a spate of accusations against other witches in neighbouring communities, the people of Manningtree confronted Clark in 1645 about being a witch. Surprisingly, the one-legged octogenarian seems to have admitted that she knew a coven of witches, but refused to say who they were. This partial confession was written down by none other than John Stern, who personally knew the local justices of the peace, Sir Harbottle Grimston and Sir Thomas Bowes. This was important. The local lordship was vacant, since the occupant had died in 1638, and the town's rector had moved to London in 1643, and followed his lord to the grave shortly after. The usual chain of command was absent, and so Stern held a substantial amount of informal power in Manningtree, and became the point of contact for the magistrates. On Friday, the 21st of March, 1645, Grimston and Bowes took their place in an assembly hall at the centre of town, ready to hear and consider the cases brought before them. John Stern was called, and carried with him a transcript of Clark's confession. The magistrates considered the document, discussed it between themselves, and asked Stern for clarification on some points, before coming to a conclusion. When Stern left the hall, he carried with him what he described later as, quote, a warrant for the searching of such persons as I should nominate, end quote. First, Stern would acquire from Clark a list of names, and he found a willing and passionate assistant in the young Matthew Hopkins. Despite her previous confession, Clark refused to incriminate herself further. She was ordered searched by four godly women to search for the devil's teat. This was believed to be a place on the body where the devil, or his servants, suckled from a witch, and, conveniently, it could appear as almost any kind of mark. If a searcher was determined to find one, they would find one. It isn't clear if Clark submitted herself to this treatment willingly, and neither is it clear if she was shaved of body hair. This was a commonly used measure to make the search for the teat easier, by exposing possible hiding places, and a popular method of making a witch confess. Whether Clark submitted or struggled, and kept her hair or was shaved, the women reported three growths that they judged to be unnatural. Next came the observation, to see if Elizabeth Clark's imps would come to her. The four search women were joined by two men, one of whom was a noted Puritan and husband to one of the search women. They'd lost a daughter recently to illness that was rumoured to have been caused by witchcraft. Unsurprisingly, they volunteered for this duty. Clark was placed under house arrest, seated in the centre of a room and watched by her neighbours, turned jailers, throughout the night. The watchers stayed awake because of duty. Clark stayed awake because of the prods and pokes of the watchers. But that night, the imps did not appear. The ordeal was repeated the following night, with similar results. As an aside, sleep deprivation is considered a form of torture by Amnesty International. So, despite the lack of physical violence or other more dramatic methods, Elizabeth Clark is being tortured here. The next day was Sunday, and for godly men and women the Sabbath was a day of rest. 
although Clark remained under guard. On Monday, the watchers returned. Past midnight on this third night, the watchers had grown bored. Bored of staring at an old woman, waiting for demonic servants to appear. Bored of nudging each other and their unwilling subject awake whenever they dozed off. Perhaps they'd been wrong, they might have thought to themselves. Maybe Widow Clark was not a servant of the devil after all. Maybe she was just an irritable old woman. A muffled bark caused them to stir, but the rapid flurry of knocks at the door jerked everyone awake. The cottage door swung slowly open on creaking hinges, softly banging against the wall as it revealed two cloaked figures standing in the doorway, accompanied by a huge dark-haired dog and silhouetted by the waning crescent of the moon. Elizabeth Clark, the lead figure boomed and strode towards the sitting woman. Thank you to Professor Gaskill for that vivid imagery. Suffice it to say, these shadowy figures were not the servants of the devil, but they were just as friendly. They were, of course, John Stern and Matthew Hopkins, come to hurry the process along. Both men demanded the names of Widow Clark's accomplices again and again, while Clark remained impassive. She had been kept up for at least three nights out of the last four, possibly even Sunday too. She was in her eighties, without a family, missing a leg, in poor health, with two strange men shrieking at her. In her position, I would be happy to be described as impassive. According to Gaskill, who is himself basing this tale on the writings of the Witchfinders, Clark kept up this strong front until the men gave up and went to leave. Only then did the poor woman speak up. If they promised not to hurt her, she would show them her imps. At first, Hopkins was reluctant, fearful for the harm that the devil's minions could inflict. When asked why she was not scared of them, Clark supposedly responded, Do ye think I am afraid of my children? Overwhelmed by exhaustion, and believing their promises that she would not be harmed, Clark went on to answer the question that all present wanted to know. Quote, Hath the devil had the use of your body? I desire to know the truth, and no otherwise. End quote. She responded simply, It is true. When asked by Hopkins in what form the devil had first approached her, Clark replied to him, quote, A tall, proper, black-haired gentleman. A properer man than yourself. I like to think that Hopkins felt a little bit awkward there, especially since Stern then asked her who she would rather sleep with, and Clark said the devil. She went on to say that she had first had diabolic intercourse six or seven years before, that the devil visited her regularly and begged her for sex, and these sessions lasted throughout the night. Warming to her theme, Clark then called out for imps. According to Hopkins and Stern, half an hour after Clark called out the name Holt, a small white creature, like a small cat, approached to greet Clark, before retreating into the shadows. Then Clark called out Germera, and lo and behold, another creature appeared, described by Hopkins as, quote, an imp like a dog, which was white with some sandy spots, and seemed to be very fat and plump with very short legs, who forthwith vanished away, end quote. Next came Vinegar Tom, which appeared like a greyhound with the legs of a deer, followed by a ferret-like imp and one like a toad. Asked if there were more, Clark stated that these creatures could change into different shapes, and that there was one more out there that was still doing the devil's work, sack and sugar. This sack and sugar would soon return the most foul, cruel, and bad-tempered rodent you ever set eyes on, 
with a vicious streak a mile wide, and who would rip Stern and Hopkins to pieces for trying to have her swum as a witch. I'm sure the wait was an anxious one, but when the creature finally appeared, it was just a rabbit. Not a killer rabbit, mind you, just a rabbit. Clark went on to assure those present that, oh, they were lucky, so lucky, that he was in a good mood. Clark declared that anyone found with a mark like hers was in league with the devil, but that even if they didn't, that didn't mean they were innocent. She recounted how she had, according to Gaskill, given permission to the devil to kill the livestock of her neighbours. She then gave Hopkins and Stern what they needed to launch their witch panic. She denounced a fellow witch. The naming of accomplices under pain of torture and threat of death is prevalent throughout the European witch trials, and yet rarely occurred in the same manner in England. In Scotland, certainly, but even with the Union of the Crowns, this behaviour didn't find its way into the normal English judicial system. Individual witch trials in England, whether they led to convictions or not, only rarely had this element, ensuring that they could only grow so far. The name that passed the lips of this old, crippled, exhausted, and possibly delusional woman was Anne West, of neighbouring Lawford. West had been arrested once news of the magistrate's actions against Clark had been heard. The reputation of West and her daughter, Rebecca, was already poor, an outsider to Lawford only having lived in the village for a few years. Their outward piety was rumoured to be merely a cover for their diabolic intent. In 1640, less than two years after first arriving in Lawford, Anne was accused of murdering the son of a prominent yeoman with sorcery. This accusation never led to charges, but the accusation of his neighbour the following year did. West was tried for witchcraft in spring of 1641, and acquitted of the charges. All well and good then. Not so fast. At the next assizes, a petition was brought to the assembly that branded her, quote, a very dangerous person amongst her neighbours, end quote. Convinced by this court of public opinion, Justice Bowes had her arrested. When she could not raise the money to pay her bail, she was transferred to Colchester Castle, an ancient Norman fortress that was now, like so many other medieval fortifications, fit only to keep people in rather than out. She was held there until March 1642, whereupon she was brought before the Chelmsford Assizes, where she was again acquitted of all charges. We will return to Anne West in a moment. The truth of this interrogation of Elizabeth Clark is unknown. All of this seems to have come from the Witchfinder's own account, and while they definitely heavily embellished their tales, something has to have happened that night, and it certainly wasn't the summoning of the devil's servants. An old woman, possibly out of senility and exhaustion, believed herself to be a witch, introduced her pets to a claustrophobic, dark, tense room, and told people who fully believed in the supernatural that they were imps in the service of Satan. This seems to be the most persuasive interpretation. The entire incident could have been invented out of whole cloth after the fact by the witchfinders, except for the fact that these details were brought up at Clark's trial, and so could have been disputed by the other witnesses there. Interestingly, the two witchfinders describe the beginning of these events very differently. For starters, in Hopkins' discovery of witchcraft, it was he himself who began the investigation. He had overheard the witches of Manningtree discussing their deeds, and when discovered, they had threatened to kill him. Now, this is just one of the many, many embellishments 
half-truths and outright lies that we find in his discovery. Once this ad hoc interrogation was complete, Hopkins left with his greyhound and went straight to the home of one of Clark's supposed victims, Richard Edwards, and told him that she had admitted to killing his pigs. He seemed to have stayed the night and left early in the morning. He later claimed that, on the way home, the greyhound spied a small white creature that appeared to be the first of Clark's imps and went for it. Hopkins claims that he couldn't see well, but that his dog was unable to catch hold of the creature. When it returned, the dog had been bitten and was bleeding. As he got to his house, he noticed a large black cat in his garden, staring at him. Again, the dog chased it, but this time it returned visibly shaking. It was the day after that that Hopkins and Stern attended to the magistrates Grimston and Bowes. They recounted their experience of the Monday night, and what Clark had confessed, requesting that she be formally questioned. To their credit, the magistrates demanded that the woman be allowed to rest so that she could answer with a clear head. The watchers attended, having stayed after the witchfinders, and recounted that Clark had listed the deaths for which Anne West was responsible. A Lawford woman, a child in neighbouring Dedham, the wife of a Manningtree gentleman, and the deaths of a ship's crew who had been swept out to sea by an unexpected storm. Clark was now brought in, shaken awake from her short rest, and asked to begin at the beginning, and so she did. She recalled that about six months prior, she had been gathering kindling when Anne West passed her by. West had taken one look at this poor, old, disabled woman, a bundle of kindling under one arm and a crutch under the other, and made her an offer. Quote, There were always ways and means for her to live much better than she did. End quote. As West departed, she promised to lend Clark a kitten who would bring her food. A few nights later, two small furry creatures visited Clark and promised to, quote, help her to a husband who should maintain her ever after, end quote, in return for feeding. Clark agreed, and then they suckled from her. Now, if you notice a few discrepancies in this second confession, such as the fact that earlier Clark said she'd met the devil seven years before, but here says it was Anne West who inducted her into the diabolic world, well, you aren't the first or the last to be sceptical. But unfortunately for many people in East Anglia, the authorities on the ground in Manningtree were not. This confession launched Hopkins and Stern into their infamous careers. Clark takes pride of place on the first page of Stern's account of his witch-hunting role, with him recalling that she, quote, was the first accused, and her marks and confession the beginning of our knowledge, end quote. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, 
every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. In the middle of April 1645, Matthew Hopkins rode through the Essex city of Colchester. The ancient Roman city was a thriving trade hub, a meeting place between English wool merchants and the rich Dutch traders who bought their wares. The city was a staunch parliamentarian stronghold, far from the military front, but dedicated to the spiritual one. The streets had been full of news from the capital. The self-denying ordinance had been passed just weeks before, and the forces of the godly were to be reorganised into a new model army. Members of parliament could remain either politician or soldier, but not both, and so focused on their chosen responsibility. The young man had no involvement in any of this. His attention was focused not on the military of modern England, but on a symbol of the old. Colchester Castle loomed above him, built centuries ago on the order of William the Conqueror, but it was no longer a structure fit for war. It was somewhat of a ruin. In fact, if you visit the castle today, you'll find it in a better state than young Master Hopkins did. For several decades now, it had been used as a prison to hold locals as they awaited trial, and one can hardly imagine worse conditions. The prisoners were beaten by the jailers, some cells were exposed to the elements on account of the roof being somewhat... non-existent. The others were condemned to weeks of darkness and filth in the dungeons. The prisoners were shackled to the walls, some by both their hands and feet. Misbehaviour could result in a stay in the Little Ease, a cell accessible only by a ladder, or in the oven, an oubliette, which was little more than a hole in the ground. The sleeping arrangements consisted solely of straw, and when it rained, the walls themselves ran with water, pooling into stagnant puddles. Illness and death were common, of course, provided that a prisoner actually survived their stay and were acquitted at trial, because remember, this wasn't a punishment, they were charged for their time there. As Hopkins rode up, he was greeted by the man in charge, Stephen Hoy, and allowed into the fortress-turned-prison. He was led down into the dark cells where the men and women were housed separately. He unlocked the door to the women's cell, and opened it to reveal, as Gaskill poetically puts it, a tableau of despair. Huddling in the dark, lit by the flickering torch held by Hoy, were six women. Among them were Elizabeth Clark, Anne West and her daughter Rebecca, who had been transferred shortly after Grimson and Bowes finished with their testimony. One of the other three was Anne Leach, a widow from the village of Mistley, who had been arrested after a search of her person revealed the witch's mark. 
She then confessed to a range of offences, including the murder of Richard Edward's son. Now, you might be thinking, wasn't Clark suspected of that death? Indeed she was, but that didn't mean that others couldn't also be guilty. Leach, in turn, had implicated a neighbour called Elizabeth Gooding, and she described attending a meeting at Clark's house with Gooding, Clark, and Anne West. Together, they had read aloud from a book, quote, wherein she thinks there was no goodness. This had led to the denunciation of Leach's daughter, Helen Clark, who was already the prime suspect in the untimely death of the daughter of the husband and wife team that had taken part in watching Elizabeth Clark. I know this is probably confusing. It's confusing to me, and I'm able to check my notes, whereas you're probably, I don't know, driving or doing the ironing. So far, we have Elizabeth Clark, who denounced Anne and Rebecca West after being watched for three nights. We have Anne Leach, who denounced the other three, as well as her neighbour Elizabeth Gooding, and together they implicated Helen Clark, Leach's daughter. Helen Clark was suspected of working with Elizabeth Clark, no relation, to kill Anne Parsley, the daughter of two of the former Watchers. Following these denunciations, the larger community became involved. Richard Edwards formalised his suspicions, as did the preacher Robert Taylor. Taylor blamed Gooding for bewitching his horse, and backed this accusation up by pointing out that Gooding was known to mingle with three widows suspected of being witches. These widows were, of course, Clark, West, and Leach. Gooding was questioned much like her friends, but insisted that she had done nothing wrong. Unlike the other three, she was not in poverty. Her husband was a shoemaker. Yet, by 1645, he had to supplement this trade with day work as a labourer, while she begged the charity of her neighbours. So while not as deprived as some, the Goodings were far from prosperous, and it appears that Elizabeth had fallen afoul of that classic English tradition. She had gone to Robert Taylor for food, and after being refused charity, went away mumbling and muttering. That night, his horse fell sick. Gooding was not alone in facing this circumstantial evidence. Helen Clark had argued with the Parsleys, at one point cursing their newborn daughter. This was the daughter that, less than two months later, died. Anne Leach had been evicted from her farm, only for the daughter of the new occupant to die from a strange illness, as did another woman who had refused to give Leach a bonnet. These coincidences, catalyzed by communal strife and suspicion, had led to these six women rotting in a dungeon. Hopkins knew all of this, and yet he wanted more. Previous trials for witchcraft in the county had collapsed from lack of evidence, including the trials of Anne West. So he instructed Hoy to remove Rebecca West from the group and have her taken to a private room. Here, in the words of Gaskill again, he, quote, gently manipulated her into becoming an informer for the crown. Rebecca had already confessed that the devil had been a father, a brother, and a lover, all in one, protecting her, providing for her, after the death of her real father. She had recalled times when her mother had revelled in the suspicious deaths of her enemies. Yet Hopkins wanted more. He promised the girl her freedom and her life, and she in turn gave him what he wanted. The Sabbath. This was another trope common to continental trials, but rare in England. Now, her previous confession was obsolete, contradicted, and replaced by the details of her new one. Now, Rebecca told of her mother, Anne, taking her to an appointment in Manningtree. As they walked, she was made to promise that whatever she saw, and whatever she heard that night, 
would remain a secret. When they arrived, they were greeted by the five other women that she'd left in the cell. They gathered in a circle, sat on chairs, and demons shaped like cats and dogs appeared, leaping into the laps of everyone but Rebecca. Rebecca was asked if she would like to join them, and upon saying yes, was made to swear on a strange book that she would keep these secrets even, quote, the rope were about her neck, and she ready to be hanged, end quote. As soon as she promised, a demon kissed her and promised its service before suckling from the marks that the searchers had found. Later, the devil himself appeared to Rebecca as a young man, irresistible, but as cold to the touch as earth. He kissed her, and they were married. Stern asserts this to have been, quote, a fearful thing to declare, end quote, while Hopkins goes into detail. Quote, The devil appeared to her, the said Rebecca, as she was going to bed, and told her he would marry her, and that she could not deny him. She said he kissed her, but was as cold as clay, and married her that night in this manner. He took her by the hand and led her about the chamber, and promised to be her loving husband till death, and to avenge her of her enemies, and that then she promised him to be his obedient wife till death, and to deny God and Christ. End quote. Noting all of this down, Rebecca was returned to her cell, and Hopkins rode back to Manningtree. On Friday the 18th of April, he met with Grimston and Bowes, relaying to them the young girl's new confession, and the order was given for her to be brought to Manningtree. On the Monday, Rebecca was brought into the hall, and once again recounted her entry into the Sabbath. Yet again, the latest edition of the story was different. Now, she had her induction only a month before, just prior to the arrest of Elizabeth Clark. She further described the acts of Maleficium aimed at the Sabbath's supposed victims. These two were entirely new inventions, and the circumstances described in this confession contradicted the initial complaints that had led to the arrests. When Richard Edwards was next called to testify, he was first told Rebecca's new account, and then agreed with the details. Others came forward, agreeing that they had been afflicted just as the girl said they had. Professor Gaskell summarises this session thus. It seemed that the witnesses, witchfinders, and committed judges had the case covered now. Whether the trial focused on conspiracy, conjuration, apostasy, or maleficium, they would be ready. Next time, we will learn the fate of the six women rotting in Colchester Castle, and see how the witchfinders Hopkins and Stern continue their adventure-slash-rampage through the southeast of England. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Lancaster, Trevor Sanders, the Marquess of Montague, Brandon Stansbury, the Countess of Clarendon, Mandy Wright. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>